My podcast guest this week isn't necessarily a household name here in the UK, but in American intellectual and conservative circles, he's a seriously big noise. He's been a writer and editor for some of the US's most prestigious publications, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post. He's just launched a magazine, and we'll talk about that forthwith. His writing, if you've come across it, is characterized by that ability, that rare ability to get straight to the heart of a problem. He writes with great flair and a flair that's underpinned, not least by his staunch Roman Catholic faith. He is Saurabh Amari, who joins me now. Saurabh, thanks so much for joining me on the Colin Brazier podcast. We appreciate your time, not least given that you've had a, a fairly late night, I understand, launching Compact the Journal. What is it? So Compact Magazine is a, a new journal on web-based, compactmag.com, that seeks to challenge uh, what we see as a failed and corrupt Western overclass. These are the people who plunge the West into 20 years of um, stupid and bloody wars. These are the people who used um, COVID, we think, to enrich um, corporations like Amazon while um, uh, leaving a wide swath of destruction across the landscape of small business. And again, this is both in Europe and the United States. And these are the people who um, gave up our manufacturing base, again, both in Europe and the United States, especially in the United States, to industrial China, which has done certainly well for China, but it's not been so good for American workers. So we want to uh, challenge them. And then we are, um, like GB News, we're independent, which means we're only accountable to our readers. Um, our first 12 pieces are up. Um, and um, as I look at them now, there's a heavy tilt right now about uh, opposing escalation Ukraine. Um, we, we describe ourselves as a radical American journal. And by radical, we don't mean extreme. In fact, we would argue that the elite consensus is extreme and deeply out of touch with what ordinary people aspire to. Um, but we do take the word radical seriously in the sense of going to the root of things. Um, and I think we think that being radical right now means questioning at least the drumbeats of war uh, and the march to war. Uh, sorry, as somebody used to, as somebody in your case, who used to edit an op-ed page, you're used to passing what are the, the you know, the, the, those threads of, of what's going through the news agenda daily, weekly, and deciding what you really need to focus on. So my question is about your selection of your first choice for for compact, because it's a difficult, you've had time to think about it. And beyond writing a piece that says, here we are, this is what we stand for. If you if you had to write one piece at the moment based on one idea for the launch edition of a magazine, what, what was that burning question you had to address? Well, um, it, in some ideal world, I would write about uh, very philosophical questions, but we're, we're running a news company, a media company at the yeah. end of the day. And so I did write a, an opening piece for compact and I, um, explored how um, it feels like it's 2003 again with some of the, and look, I supported those earlier wars um, to have kind of come clean about it and regret it, but that sense that it's, uh, we've, we've got to escalate, and if you don't like it, then you must be a Putin stooge or a Kremlin stoolie and um, enjoy your freedom fries. Um, how is that happening? And how is it possible, again, that the same personnel in some cases uh, who made those now, in retrospect, obviously catastrophic decisions, like, didn't pay any price. They're back in, they're back in action and, um, and driving us down the same path. It's funny you should mention 2003. I'm just going to walk down my own memory lane briefly, if you'll indulge me. It was, the, it was my daughter's birthday, my second eldest daughter's birthday, Agnes. 
uh, on the 19th of, of March. I, I remember it's a particularly memorable birthday for me because it also coincides with the the invasion of, of, of Iraq. And I was embedded at the time with the US 3rd Infantry Division. And they were the first people to cross the border into Iraq and the first US troops, the first Allied troops uh, to, to get to Baghdad. In fact, I didn't see a picture of Agnes until I received it on a laptop at Baghdad International Airport some, some weeks after. I mentioned this because... Uh, on the road to Baghdad, there was this famous thunder run where we made, you know, made time really quickly to get to Baghdad. And there was a moment when they, we, we, we were told that maybe we'd, we'd, f- we'd found the Holy Grail, we'd found the weapons of mass destruction, we'd found the WMD. There'd been, a, there'd been a cache of arms that were found, it was exotic materiel, and, and it was sent off. And I was there, I was embedded with, with Sky, but there was also CBS and AP. And in, the, in those hours that they were gone, these soldiers, we thought, well, this is it. They, 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 they've, the whole casus belli for this war is about to be proven. They found WMD. They came back and said, guys, you know what? It, it, it wasn't that exotic. It certainly wasn't WMD. And I've said to people since, as, as, as our conservative movement that we both subscribe to has at times grown more hysterical and inclined to believing absurd conspiracy theories, that would have been the easiest conspiracy theory in the world to hatch, wouldn't it? We found them, guys. And there we were, mainstream media on, embedded with the army. Simplest thing to pull off. So look, I, I'm, I'm digressing and self-indulging a little bit, Sarah. But you, you know what I'm trying to get to? That that was demonstrably, factually a dismissal of any conspiracy theory. And yet many of our fellow travellers seem so inclined to believe that BS. Yes. Um, and, and equally, the, the notion that, for example, there were deep operating ties between Saddam Hussein and the people behind 9-11. I mean, there was an entire book published uh, here uh, by Steve Hayes, um, uh, who now is uh, still like a neoconservative grandee. Um, that, that was that was like old school fake news. It was fake news before we had the term fake news. And like the, the example you mentioned, <laughs> it just doesn't, no one pays a price. It's a very strange, um, Strange world. Let's talk about paying a price. Let's talk about moral hazard. Um, one of the things, and I'm sorry to jump around a little bit here, but I think moral hazard has been something I've been conjuring with uh, recently because, you know, the last two years, like many TV journalists, I've been absorbed by COVID. And I, I, there's, a, there's a question I can't answer. Maybe you can help me. Do, do modelers face some moral hazard? If, if modelers get it so wrong, if modelers say, uh, the epidemiologists say COVID is going to be this bad and you must take this action. And that action accidentally results in you know, huge mental health problems, massive oncological backlogs, people dying needlessly of cancer. Where can there be moral hazard for, for modelers? I mean, um, I mean, I assume you're, you're alluding to, to Dr. Ferguson um, and his predictions of absolute uh, doom and gloom which, yeah, as you say, became the basis of very drastic lockdown policies. Um, since then, obviously, there's been revisions of uh, of that model or uh, revisions of its um, of its reception, whether or not it was actually um, correct or not, and to what degree it was incorrect. Um, no, I mean there uh, there really hasn't been it. it it's funny to me that um, it, Ferguson's person is very interesting in the sense that what it, it, it was this felt collective need for accountability for him and it was found not by addressing head-on you know the premises of his models or whether or not these models are actually you know whether there should be questioning how basing social policy on just these sort of the the 
epidemiological models. That's not how he was got. He, it was because he was breaking COVID rules, like seeing his mistress or whatever. I can't remember what it was, but it was this sort of a small lapse. And it was like, aha. Um, and to me, I mean, that was, that was a tabloid way of getting at someone who is, again, there's this need to hold them accountable, but we have to do it through this, this way. Um, in the United States, we had a, a similar example. We had um, Andrew Cuomo in the state that I live in, the governor of, uh, of New York State, was in the early days of the pandemic, he was doing these very commanding press conferences, and he became the face of calm and assured action, which was contrasted by the media, by President Trump's, like, admittedly, that's his style, like very hap seemingly haphazard response to the pandemic. But as it happens, um, Cuomo had made a terrible decision, which was to insist that nursing homes accept COVID positive patients, um, which caused somewhere around deaths of 15,000 people. There was a real senicide of old people in New York nursing homes. And so then his reception shifted. Couldn't get him for that decision, but it was, it was, he was me too. Uh, and so the people find a way to, um, but it's weird. We can't, we can't, not that the Me Too cases weren't important, but I will say that um, they were not the most egregious. This was not Jeffrey Epstein level Me Too. He's, he's Italian, so he likes to like sort of squeeze people's cheeks and so forth. Um, but the, 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 what's outrageous about that, as you say, is ultimately that um, his real lapse in leadership wasn't addressed. He, he was got for something else. And, you know, and look, at the end of the day, uh, just because an epidemiologist says, look, minister, uh, this is the data, these are the, the models, these are the projections I'm showing you, it's up to our elected officials to say, actually, uh, OK, I accept them and, 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 I, and then we're going to take these steps as a consequence. I mean, of, of course, they're hardly going to repudiate that advice, are they? Uh, because if, if they do and it goes wrong and, and the modelers turn out to be right, uh, then, then come the public inquiry, uh, it's resignation time. I, I think my point is, do we trust... The, the academy, the scientific academy, to say to the modelers, you really cocked up, guys. And there's got to be a price to be paid, at least maybe in terms of your maybe your career. I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I hate the idea of clamping down on the free expression of ideas and, and, and academics doing what they do best. But when, the, when there is such a massive cost to getting it wrong, then maybe there just needs to be a, a mechanism by which we do something about that. I want to pick up on something you said a little bit earlier, and I think that's the really the right point, is that the, the real accountability for a, um, a political decision has to lie with the statesman or stateswoman. Um, and th this was the problem. It's not, you're right. It wasn't the problem that people put forward various models. It was that um, the statesmen and women, the, the, our political leaders, substituted graphs for ultimately a kind of wider prudential judgment. Uh, which is what they have to do. Politics is the art of of deciding what is prudent given a certain circumstance. And yes, you should take into account the voice of public health officials and epidemiologists, but also you should take into account the voice of um, mental health experts and um, alcohol abuse experts and loneliness experts and the question of the economy and the question of the well-being of um, workers and labor union and so on and so forth. And collectively putting all that together, the state's um, man or woman, the politician should make the decision. Um, not just this sort of, it, it's precisely scientism as opposed to science that we're dealing with when we say that um, scientific questions are the only ones 
worth considering or asking and at the, at the expense of a whole range of other questions that don't have scientific answers. They're moral questions, they're political questions. And when the epidemiologists themselves feed this mistake by saying there is such a thing as the science with a capital S, and if a politician um, takes a different view or makes a different decision, he or she is violating the science. Um, and so that's, I think, ultimately where real accountability has to lie is with the political leader not to become sort of narrow about what source of information to pay attention to, but sort of take a broad view. That's just politics. When we think about scientism, we think about it as this, this all-consuming, suffocating belief system uh, that squeezes out other ways of looking at the human condition, most obviously religion, religion chief amongst them. Um, I, I want to get into to the role of faith in public life, but I, I want to start by saying this. A friend of mine pointed out uh, yesterday to me a, a part of a press conference that we at GB News, but other news channels, took in full for a couple of hours. And it was a great story. It was the release of uh, an Anglo-Iranian woman called Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who'd been held in, uh, by the Iranians uh, for six years. And in the press conference, a long press conference, uh, at one point she said, uh, she was asked, you know, about, about the, uh, you know, being incarcerated for that long, how it had changed her. And she said, well, it, it really, it really deepened my faith. And, uh, and then the, the journalists moved straight on, and none of the other journalists picked up the point. And it was absolutely fascinating. Want, I wanted more on that. I mean, I, I, don't, I have no idea what her faith is, uh, even less now how it was deepened. And it just reminded me of how my tribe, mainstream media tribe, is so uncomfortable uh, asking that question. And the funny thing was, I know privately the journalist who was involved in putting the question, but this person I know to be a devout Roman Catholic. And yet they couldn't bring themselves to ask a question about how her faith deepened. How did we get there? Um, I, I really don't. I, I really don't know. I think the well, I do know that, um, that it's a sort of a. I worry it's a dull answer, but we've had a, a process of profound secularization um, in the West. Um, it's a matter, not a matter of decades, but of centuries such that um, faith has been reduced to a private matter without public implications, such that when someone like a public figure, in this case, a, a, a former prisoner brings up uh, faith, that, okay, that's your private thing, set it aside. And that's not, that doesn't have pu important public implications. So let's ask about the serious public things. And it's a, it's unfortunate a lot of the world is, is still religious. A lot of the world is still uh, uh, um, bound to God uh, in one way or another. And so if journalists don't have a language or a curiosity, including, I mean, in this case, it's, it's sad to say that it's a, it's a, the journalist uh, uh, himself or herself person of faith, um, then our media lose sight of this sort of pivotal dimension of what it means to be human. Um, but that's, that's, um, it's not, if, let me revise, it's not even just secularization, it's privatization of faith, the idea that faith is only sort of, there are these public things that we discuss that are matters of public reason, and then there is faith, which is your private um, understanding. Pope Benedict, you'll remember this, had a wonderful 
um, statement on this issue at Regensburg in 2006, the Regensburg Address, which was misunderstood by much of the mainstream media. So this is when he talked about the old uh, Byzantine emperor. Is it, is it that well? Yes, exactly, exactly. And his encounter with a Muslim scholar. But people understood that, misunderstood that in the press as a harangue against Islam, which it wasn't. It was a harangue against the West saying, your account of what's reason and reasonable has become so narrow since the Enlightenment that it excludes lots of questions that matter to people, which they find answers to in, in, in religion and philosophy. In a, answers that aren't readily translatable into <clears throat> scientific kind of formulations, but which are nevertheless vital and true. Um, that's what, that was the point of the Regensburg Address, of course, um, in part because of the illiteracy, the religious illiteracy of so much of the media. Um, it was it was mis incorrectly framed and caused a and obviously an explosion in the Muslim world. But I think that's it's privatization and and a. a a very narrow account of what really is reasonable. I, I, the part of that privatization and that religious illiteracy, I mean, where to begin on religious illiteracy? I mean, um, uh, one thing that strikes me when I, you know, watch TV with the kids, you know, there's a, a very often if you're watching period drama, for instance, there's this, there's this determination to, to offer as much verisimilitude as possible. We'll get the clothes exactly as they were in Edwardian times. We'll get the building just as it was in the Georgian era. Uh, uh, but then they'll, the way people speak is often, you know, modernized. I sort of get that. But then the complete ex expunging of, of, of how important faith Christianity would have been at that time, how it set the punctuation marks for the day, the week, the year, completely obliterated. Uh, and it's this act of posthumous historical self-harm, it seems to me. Yes, I mean, um, and, and uh, projecting on, uh, of, of, of the present onto the, onto the past. There are exceptions, though. There's a wonderful HBO show, I don't know if you watch, called um, The Young Pope. Um, yes, <laughs> with um, the British actor Jude Law. With Jude Law as a, as, a, yeah. as a kind of traditionalist American pope. But what's interesting is, is, is so astute about that show is it gets into various dynamics within Catholicism that um, you're, you're surprised someone in the world of Hollywood and HBO is um, that clever. But that, you're absolutely right, is the exception rather than the norm. Yeah, oh, quite surreal, actually, that, that program at times, wasn't it? I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, the, the, what, if it comes down to making a choice, uh, this, you're going to have to give something away about yourself, sorry, I'm here, uh, between the two popes, as pre presented in the Netflix, I think it was, film, where we're looking at a, you know, a sort of Pope, Fra Pope Francis type and a Pope Benedict time, conservative versus, in quotes, liberal. How do you fall? Which camp do you fall into? Or is that, is my analysis, my question simply too crude? It's a, it's a perfectly fair question. Uh, I, I just see a lot more continuity between the popes, despite there, there are absolutely differences in shift and, and tone and emphasis. And there are some, for example, questions of liturgical questions where there's real differences. And I happen to be on the Benedict side because Pope Benedict restored some of the older liturgy of the church that had been lost um, um, as a result of a misunderstanding of what the Second Vatican Council was supposed to have wrought. And Pope Benedict, um, Pope Francis obviously is not a fan of the more traditional liturgy. It's very obvious. So in that, on that, I would argue on that uh, question, I'm definitely a Pope Benedict person. But more broadly, on many other issues, um, uh, I just see more continuity than people in the media do. 
And to give you an example, which ties it together to our uh, other discussion, I have, I was lucky as part of it when I was working at the post, um, I was part of a journalist's um, group that followed Pope Francis when he traveled to Abu Dhabi and became the first Roman pontiff to set foot on the Arabian Peninsula. And in his statements, sitting next to Muslim scholars, especially the Sheikh of Al-Azhar, which is the most important um, Sunni Muslim sort of school of seminary, school school of theology, um, Pope Benedict was making the same kinds of critiques of a narrow enlightenment reason as had his predecessor, uh, Pope Benedict. So Francis was echo, in fact, the documents, you know, often Vatican documents have these footnotes. And if you look at the footnotes of the Francis speeches in Abu Dhabi, they cited back to Pope Benedict, um, Pope Benedict's writing. So just this is one example of how there's this sort of deeper continuity. And in fact, if there weren't continuity in the Catholic Church, if it was just like uh, kind of presidential elections when the next team comes, you know, things radically change, it would not be the Catholic faith. It would be un- uh, deeply unsettling. It's precisely that sort of iron continuity that for people like me, I'm, I'm a convert now, I can disclose that, um, makes the church such a consolation that there's one thing in the world that's stable, continuous. I, I, I agree completely with that. Um, I, I'll come back on to the conversion story because it's interesting. Um, but just on, I said to a colleague yesterday, and not entirely flippantly, wouldn't it be great if Pope Francis got into the the Pope Mobile or gone you know, and went to Lviv and went to Ukraine and and said, I I, I bring the offer of I, I bring the hope the message of peace and reconciliation, stop bombing. I mean, look, it, pipe dream stuff, but it just feels that within this crisis, it, the only figure globally who could who could actually make a sort of coup de theater like that is is Francis. It's not going to happen, but uh, you know, we, we, we can we can imagine. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that um, there were some extraordinary gestures early on. Um, Pope Francis took his own vehicle, as you'll remember, and went to the Russian emba- embassy to the Holy See. We don't know what was said. And um, I will say this is very interesting. At least there's been reporting in the European Catholic press, including La Croix, which is a French Catholic magazine, that... Um, that Holy See diplomats are against just mindlessly flooding Ukraine with arms because they believe that will just extend the conflict without actually altering the ultimate outcome because Russia is a stronger state. So under Catholic just war theory, you can't wage a war if in fact there isn't a reasonable chance of winning, if it just you're just fighting and you're extending misery. But yeah, I mean, that sort of, um, that sort of diplomacy that you're talking about, um, I, I, I would love to see that too. It, it's part. Uh, we know Pope Francis has a um, a nerve issue. I forget what the the sort of diagnosis is, but it's very painful. Um, he's he's quite enfeebled, uh, which yeah. is some irony there because his his predecessor is still alive, Pope Benedict, very old but still alive, um, and uh, that brings the church into weird situations of two. <laughs> two popes, uh, uh, or one emeritus and one current pope, yeah. um, both of them fa- fairly ailing. But, uh, but sir, as you say, at the end of the day, it's just diplomacy. And Joseph Stalin, wasn't it, who said, you know, how many, who asked, how many divisions does, does the pope have? So it can only ever just be words, obviously. And um, conversion. I, it, it, well, I, I spent two decades uh, at a mainstream broadcaster here in the UK. And towards the end, I grew really very 
disaffected, but privately disaffected with the direction of travel. And um, one of my sort of guerrilla activities was that I would um, identify people who who spoke to me, who I thought were sort of intellectual heroes um, and, you know, just ring them up, email them, come for lunch. Let me, let, me, let me just remind you that there are people out there in the mainstream media who are rooting for you, even, even though we can never obviously show that. I mean, people like Douglas Murray, I don't take, you know, take him for lunch. And, and what struck me with people like him, others too, uh, very often was that, uh, you know, eventually I took the leap and, and quit my job. And, but these people actually faced genuine tests of their moral and even physical courage. I mean, I won't go into details, but, you know, Douglas has faced many death threats over the years. And I, I, you know, and I imagine that applies to you, too. I, you know, if, if you are uh, what could be characterized as an apostate, you, you know, you, you, who, who has left um, his Shia faith, as I read that you, ha- you did, uh, and to embrace uh, Christianity, that's going to bring down opprobrium on your head and not just commentary, but actual f- threats of physical violence. And, and I, you know, I, look, I, 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 salute, I salute people who have that, that bravery. That's what it is. Um, honestly, I have to say, in my case, that's, that's uh, that, that um, I can't take credit for that kind of bravery because I was I came from a very secular family in Iran. I was born among kind of secular intellectual types, middle class, upper middle class in Iran, such that when I was receiving the church, I say in my own immediate family, there was either indifference or um, cheers. Yeah. And um, I, I was received at, at a at a London church, uh, actually, because I was living in Britain for four years. And that's when I ultimately kind of made the ultimate decision to say, OK, I'm going to become a Catholic. Um, and and. I wasn't planning on announcing it, I should say. I, you know, certainly at least not until after I was baptized and received into the church. Um, but then Father Hamel was killed by a pair of jihadists. He's a French priest in Normandy, um, a pair of jihadists inspired by uh, Islamic State. That was when I said, okay, I have to do something. I'm about to become Catholic. How do I react to this? So like any millennial, I took to Twitter and tweeted out, um, you know, I am Father Hamel, um, hashtag uh, je suis, you know, uh, paramel. And um, everyone thought I had, you know, because they looked up, I have a public profile, I had a Wikipedia page about me. They looked at that and said, oh, this person must be a, a Muslim. Look at him, he's from Iran. And that kind of story set in. Muslim converts because of this uh, uh, brutal act. It wasn't true. It was made for a very good story. So then I had to write a memoir to explain that, in fact, you know, I that, that's not how I... Um, come to the faith. But the one side detail in this and all this is that because we were we were in London, the priest who was instructing me said, you know, uh, could you take down that tweet? Because you mentioned the church and there's a lot of crazies in London. Like, right. Sorry, Father. Not wise as a serpent. <laughs> the, um, I mean, that's nuts, isn't it? But I mean, th- th- there we are. Um, uh, as you say, you, you came from a, a broadly secular uh, Iranian family, the, the Iran that that, that that I can that we that we've all seen sort of the black and white pictures of pre, you know, when the Shah was still in place, pre pre Iranian Revolution seventy nine, um, it's it's almost inconceivable that Iran ever existed now. I mean, we, we all family rooted in that in that culture, in that life, in that world. Well, it still does. It's just behind closed doors now, and this is what one of the. Um troubles or crises of of iranian life ever since i mean i was born after the revolution but it was um 
a kind of permanent fact of my life and the milieu in, milieu in which I had grown up was the fact that we all lived in two worlds. There was the world behind closed doors in which alcohol fl flowed freely and Western ideas and books and movies and so forth were discussed. And then there was the world outside, which was, um, especially then, less so now, I would say, they've chilled out a little bit. But at the time, it was immediate post-revolutionary years, a society that had re-Islamized itself quite self-consciously. Um, and to live in that double world was a kind of very Iranian experience. And I will say over time, which is a very disturbing fact as an immigrant to the West, is that I now see something like that happening in the West with more muted forms, no judicial floggings and so forth. But there are things that people will say behind closed doors that they, we dare not say um, in public. And that's a very terrifying thought for someone like me who's escaped to um, the, a, a free society in order not to have to live a kind of double life like that. Well, I, I you know, I remember traveling in the 90s, early 90s, uh, all the way across Iran to get to Pakistan and, and uh, through cities like Isfahan uh, and obviously Tehran. And in Tehran in particular, been struck by those huge murals with, you know, things like the Star of David and a, and a skull superimposed on it and a mushroom cloud. It was pretty clear what the state felt about things. But as you say, behind all that, uh, and this became clear as the years rolled by, I mean, the pen internet penetration, pretty much higher than anywhere else uh, in, in that part of the world, but even sort of global by global standards. So there was this sort of duality. There was a, there were these two dialogues going on in, in Iran. I'd never made that, that, I'd never made the connection between that and sort of what we're increasingly seeing here. Let me make this connection, though, which is the how the internet is leading to different types of conversations. Well, that's such a sweeping statement, isn't it? But if you if you think about what we're doing now and this idea of you know a fifty minute long chat, uh, you know people say to me, Colin, look, uh, these things won't fly. You, you, the, the, you know, hour long chat. You know, uh, it's got to be a tweet. No, th th this, th this discursive conversational. I, I, you know, debate about ideas, it, it's, ca it's catching fire again. I, I agree. And, um, well, two thoughts about that. One is I'm a little bit worried about the consolidation of internet ownership um, of these big platforms controlled by a very few, um, which has resulted in crucial cases, including one I was involved in um, in 2020. So now been two years now. Um, it, you know, I was working at the New York Post and we dug up Hunter Biden's laptops, uh, laptop, his emails. Um, and it was a solid story. I mean, I was not part of the reporting team. I was on the comment pages. I was running the opinion pages. So, um, but I was, I defended our paper because I knew that we were, what we had dug up was true. Um, and, uh, but it was, it, it was deleted from, you couldn't share it on Twitter, including on private messages. Uh, we had our, it was reduced in circulation on Facebook and we were banned from Twitter for two weeks. The New York Post being America's oldest continuously published um, daily newspaper. It was founded by one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. So um, the fact that they were able to do that and they did that is very alarming and has continued um, with critics about COVID and so forth, finding themselves unpersoned on the internet. So that's one thought, hold that thought. The other thought that I have with respect to this is this flowering of conversation is I am a little bit worried about the loss of print culture. Um, I've, made, I've made a point of trying to read you know, magazines and newspapers like one used to do um, from beginning to end so that you have this sort of contextualized sense of what's happening in the world um, rather than what can often be very sort of 
everyone's media diet, including people in the media, have this haphazard, oh, I just think popped up in front of me and, and, and some algorithm picked it for me. Now my attention has gone to something else. Um, so I definitely appreciate these long, deep conversations like you and I are having right now and definitely enabled by the internet. Um, but I also worry about the some of the effects of of um, of the same amazing technology on on general literacy, on news literacy, on on print culture. I, I make the case to my kids: read a newspaper, guys, because actually there's no better way of triaging efficiently information because you're holding out a broadsheet and your eye skims so quickly, and it's it's a much physically bigger space to actually triage that info. And just on the point about illiteracy, lit, literally yesterday. Uh, I said to a colleague of mine, nameless colleague, who'd written a script for me uh, and talked about the sad tragedy. And I said, oh, sad tragedy. I said, you, are you aware of any happy tragedies? Uh, he, he shook his head. And that kind of within a newsroom, which obviously print the print newsroom, which is, I think, to some degree dying off, that trickle down of, of pedantry. No, it's tautological. You can't write that. And you know, that, that, that idea of, of words and the precise meaning of words, Orwell reminds us through his description, the glossary about Newspeak in 1984, uh, that, that idea that the precise definition that you use of a word allows you to, to see the world more clearly. And, you know, we'll come on to Ukraine, but the number of reports I hear about Ukraine where the town was devastated, she was devastated to have lost he was devastated. It's a devastating scene. And our ability just to have, you know, precise synonyms to describe loss and pain and anger that now comes in this, I can't speak for American journalism, but in British journalism, everything comes under this catch-all of devastated. It's become this, uh, I, I mean, it's, sorry, is it the same? You, it, the word devastated, is it so, you know, universal in America? I don't know. Yes, uh, or, a, a, you know, a bomb ripped through <laughs> but this is more than journalese. This is more than journalese. It's a, it's it's about a sort of it's about a diminishing vocabulary, and it's about an incuriosity about wo about words. Journalese, I, I think, has always been there. I will say this though, and I'm, I, obviously, I work for among others. I mean, I spent most of my career at News Corp, um, and um, um, but the latter years at the New York Post, which is very famous for its headlines or, you know, um, most famously um, headless body found in a topless bar, which is this sort of legendary tabloid headline. And the same, I would say, uh, by the way, for the sun that at its yeah. best, the sun is actually a school of precise, you know, a sun leader has to be 200 words, 250 words. You're so right. Everything packed yeah. with sort of punch. And so again, that's, it's a real loss to lose those old school, newsroom guys who would who would who would say we actually you know, don't say it's a sad tragedy um i mean i'm making a jokey point but it's true and um yeah sorry one more funny story about this which i love is um you know when you're a young hack uh, you're asked sometimes to write pieces about uh you know these countries that you've never flown over which is terrifying that you're and um you know, there's, there's always a temptation to say, oh, Zimbabwe is at a crossroads, which reminds <laughs> me of sort of the of the Simpsons where uh, Homer Simpson is upgraded to first class. So he gets a free copy of The Economist and he goes to Marge, you know, "Ooh, Marge, did you know Singapore is at a crossroads? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Um, let's. Um, 
Let's, let's talk. Let's talk about Ukraine. Let's talk about uh, how we how we do the story in such a way that we present another view with, with without necessarily being tarred as a Putin apologist. And we've talked on air at GB News about this a couple of times, and we've both identified trends within the coverage of the story which have, have bothered us and certainly bothers me. Um, one trend that will 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 maybe have an will, will un, un, indubitably have an effect, which is just fatigue with the story uh, you know i mean that if this war carries on it shows every sign of carrying on then actually it's it's a human universal that interest will will wane right oh i, I think it's i think it's already happened i think it's already happened um someone um whom i know is a very kind of um serious watcher of digital trends of what people are searching and maybe the first week or so, people, the top searches exploding was Ukraine war, Ukraine war. Um, about a week later, then the searches shifted to um, Ukraine inflation, Ukraine gas prices, you know. So people began to think, oh, how is this affecting? I'm it's like, sorry, I'm, like the tragedy is bad, but I'm worried about what it will mean in terms of, um, you know, energy supply chains being disrupted and so forth. So. That's a real phenomenon. People will will lose interest. In some cases, by the way, you know, it's a journalist's job not to allow that to happen because there are things happening in the world that are moral outrages and people need to, uh, people of conscience still need to pay attention. And that's part of our, of our challenge is not to allow that to happen. Yeah, there is a sort of statute of limitations there, isn't there? That it doesn't matter how many. It's like you know. Suddenly, I'm back in my English lesson. I'm aged eight, and the the, the tutor's saying, uh, "Describe the inside of a tennis ball." There are only so many ways of describing the inside of that tennis ball, and and it becomes this great test of journalistic ingenuity to find the angle nobody else has thought of that we haven't done before. But eventually, even you know that bucket's emptied. Uh, and I agree with you. I mean, it, the, 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 it's, it becomes part of the vocation of journalism to keep the the viewer, the listener, the the reader are interested uh, when then when they're no longer interested i mean and that's that that's a challenge that we're going to be that journalists in covering that ukraine the ukraine story will face soon i think um just in terms of how we uh, a, a development i i think has been palpable has been the, the, the you know i think it's, this year is the 40th anniversary of the falklands war and the bbc famously at the time were much criticized i imagine not least by leaders in the sun for uh, for being so impartial, you know, punctiliously impartial. So they would refer to British forces and Argentinian forces. And people would say, well, hang on, this is the state broadcaster. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. It needs to, it makes, oh, these are our guys. These are our, our boys who have been killed. Uh, and now, uh, that, 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 that this, it's not, it's certainly not as scrupulous and there's a desire to emote, emote, emote. And, and maybe I'm answering my own question about how, how journalists find an answer to the question, keep the viewer interested. They bring themselves into the story more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, here in the United States, um, coverage of the Trump administration had to have this, um, because the narrative frame was, Trump is uh, just uh, a, a both, a, which is funny, both a bumbling idiot, but also a dangerous autocrat. And he could be both, you know, well, it, 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 it violates the law of contradiction to suggest that he could be both, but they, they tried. Um, and so how do you constantly have that tone of alarm about Trump, right, and not cover him in a sensible way? Well, a lot of our, especially our broadcast journalists, had to put themselves into the center of the story of how Trump is harming me personally, which was absurd because these are journalists and they're some of the 
most comfortable people um, in, in some of the most comfortable journalists in the world compared to like, you know, uh, people who are now actually on the on the front lines of the sport covering it. Um, so that there's there's that element. There's also I think they're very dangerous one with this war. And we're seeing um, which is interesting how a kind of um, liberal nationalist jingoism is back. Remember, for the past four or five years, nationalism was out, right? It was, it was Brexit. It was the rise of, of these populist nationalist movements across the developed world. But now, um, in opposition to President Putin, a, a kind of liberal jingoism even is, is, uh, is back, in, um, uh, back in flavor. And how do you sustain that narrative is by really oversimplifying, I would argue, of turning, turning Vladimir Putin into um, just this flat cartoon, right? These, these Star Wars style, Marvel movie style narratives. Um, and not that, I mean, Vladimir Putin is a, is, is a former KGB operative, a hard-nosed man, and, and obviously is not someone to, to be taken lightly and certainly not someone to be um, given a free pass morally because he's definitely done some really awful, awful things. But to frame him really simplistically is dangerous because if he's if he's Voldemort or if he's you know the 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 uh, Sauron or if he's Hitler, then you can't negotiate with him, right? You can only utterly oppose someone like that when you flatten him into an absolute villain, and that you know that might not be something we want to do, right? And that then you won't, you you aren't willing, for example, to give him an off ramp. I've heard people say this so often that he can't have an off ramp for this. Um, well, if you don't give him an off-ramp and he's, a, he's in charge of the world's largest nuclear arsenal, what are you going to do? You're just going to kind of frustrate him to the point, right, where he has <laughs> really, really dangerous. And there's, so the narratives of the Mia create, we, we joke, the sort of cliches of uh, Singapore at a crossroads and devastated used over and over. Mm. Those cliche narratives can become dangerous when, when they obscure decision makers' views of what the risks, for example, of escalating might be. Is it, and I've got to be very careful with the language I use. I was, I was going to use that, the, the metaphor of you know, a toddler tantrum stamping of feet, but th there is a bit of that here in some of that liberal pacifism. And maybe the great, the re that we're at the, the foothills of this, this really sharp learning curve for a lot of these newfound jingoists, which is actually, it doesn't matter how much you denounce somebody as a panto villain. It doesn't ma matter how many times you say they've contravened, uh, you know, war crimes laws. Doesn't matter how many red lines you set up, you know, if you use chemical weapons, we're going to be really, really angry. If you use nuclear weapons, whoa. But actually, when they wake up and realize that it doesn't matter what you say, he's still in power. The body count is still mounting and there's nothing you've said and there is nothing you can do that changes that. Then, then that is a moment of clarity. That is an epiphany for, for that kind of mindset. Yes. And, and the realization, by the way, related that um, contrary to the narrative, it's painful to admit, contrary to the narrative that the whole world is united against Putin. Uh, no, um, China is sticking by him in a uh, much more so than many people have predicted. India refuses to condemn, refuses to. And then much of the much of the developing world, the same um, because they're beginning to see themselves as uh, 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 not part of this Western bloc for various reasons. And, and so that's a painful, that's another painful realization. You always say the whole world is watching. Maybe not. 
No, no, it's funny. The whole world thing, I mean, uh, setting aside, you know, the economist readers may be like Homer Simpson, who do have a sort of world, a worldview, I think, uh, that's well informed. Uh, it seems to me sometimes that we live in a world where, you know, just because people go for weekend breaks to Prague, that they're worldly. And I don't think we are. I think we're, I think we're growing less worldly uh, in the West. I think there's actually this kind of new kind of uh, it sounds like an oxymoron, but sort of intellectual parochialism. I think there's an incuriosity, and and it's it's worse than incuriosity because people think they know. People think they know how the world works. They think they've got a handle on the work. They know, they they know less than they think they know. Yes, I mean, since we're talking across the Atlantic between Brits and Americans, both have this view because they think that. Uh, because we our language is mutually intelligible to each other, Brits and America, obviously it's the same language. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think for American journalists think British politics are really simple and they know it just as well as they do. Of course it isn't. There's all these historical complexities. And I would say the, the, the vice versa as well. A lot of Brits, um, British journalists think they know they know America when in fact it's, you know, it's this continental country with all these sub regions and, and accents and et cetera, et cetera. And it's not so simple. So um, now apply that to countries that are truly alien to us uh, or more alien to us. And yet our tendency to try to pretend like we know them um, and you're set up for a lot of misunderstanding and I think heartache. I won't pretend that I've got any handle on American politics. Obviously I I, I said to the kids in the run up to the, uh, the last presidential election, I said, look, and they were just spouting the usual sort of, you know, Trump's a warmongering, whatever, da, da, uh, idiot. And I said, look, he's got, it was his final stump speech. Let's watch this. Let's watch this. And uh, and not for the first time, I was restraining the belly laughs. He makes he makes me laugh. You know, I, I wouldn't want him. I wouldn't want him running my country necessarily, uh, though. I think he's got many great aptitudes, and I think a lot of what he, a lot of what he says about a lot of things is is apt. Uh, I, on balance, he's not my kind of conservative, if he's a conservative at all. But look, it's not my country. But um, but I said to the kids, open your mind. And at the very least, just see just see a politician who can make you titter a little bit. And that's that's what I've missed in recent years. I've just missed a, a politician who could make me giggle a bit. I mean, I ter- that's terribly shallow of me. I know. I know. I hated the fact that Ang- Angela Merkel's name was pronounced Angela. He thought it should be <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, whenever, if you watch his speeches, whenever he mentions Angela Merkel, he sort of goes, well, I was talking to <laughs> as though it's not her name, you know, it's offensive to him. Which is funny. He was really funny. I hate to say well, it. Well, the, the, the scene I made, I made a couple of my kids watch it. There's a bit where he's, um, he's meeting with a couple of, uh, uh, they were the kind of trackers, army trackers, whisperers, uh, scouts, uh, and they were Native Americans. And he's, and he's presenting with some, some military award, these old guys. And he says, uh, but I know a Native American. She goes by the name of, maybe you've heard of her, Pocahontas. <laughs> and he's talking about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, I defy anybody to watch that and not, you know. Anyway, look, I, the, a more serious question. Will he, will he win again? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've done so many sort of prognostications of this kind and then had it. I predicted Brexit wrong. I predicted the 2016 <laughs> election wrong. So I don't know. What I will say is that... Um, uh, let me put it this way: This might surprise me. I'm I, like I'm very much associated with the American right, but right now I'm actually very grateful for Biden, as opposed to some of the sort of genuinely scary Republican Party hawks being in power, um, because who are just sort of like, well, let's escalate, let's blah blah blah, blah. and 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 Biden's 
been around the block for foreign policy was he's he talk about enfeebled he's incredibly enfeebled and uh, you know there's i think there's serious questions about his mental acuity nevertheless he's like this sort of old hand and it's very reassuring compared to who could be power in the midst of this can, can, can um, i can, sorry i'm sorry to interrupt can, can i just make an inter- a, a, a theological point as well about you know he he's one of us he, and i just want and i say to people when i'm talking about catholicism uh, that I, I genuinely do, uh, in my heart, see all men as my brothers, and um, and and that has to that has to be part of it with Biden, doesn't it? That he's he's not going to look at a Russian and think you're uh, untermensch, that you're a subhuman who deserves, you know, bombing from thirty thousand feet or whatever, unless I really have to. Um, I'm not saying that everybody who isn't, you know, God botherer is somehow inhuman or inhumane, but it's it's a slice of his personality, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, I would say there are, there are other issues in which the church is very clear where politicians should come down, like abortion, which he um, sure. obviously runs against that. But there is this this Irish Catholic sensibility that is undeniably a part of him and makes it might at his most. And again, I've been so ferociously critical of him at times, but makes it brings up those those best moments of him where we're you know uh, he's mocked for it sometimes but he like he reaches out and hugs someone who is in pain and so forth it ge- it does seem genuine and i think there is um this undercurrent of irish catholic sensibility behind it sorry i think we just got a cue there from your your son who's coughing in the background that's probably a good a good a good place to end this and who would have thought we'd end up end up by uh, lording joe sleepy joe biden but there, there you go that's the nature of these lengthy conversations we can get into it Sorry, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. 